Welcome to this episode of Portraits of Music. I'm Ross Sievertson. And I'm Clay Couturio, music director and conductor of the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. We are here today with uh, Maestro Clay Couturio and our president and executive director, Laurie Garvey. And we are celebrating the start of season four, episode one of Portraits and Music and the 62nd season of the Richardson Symphony. That's right. Hi, everybody. Thank you for being here on a, on a almost, not quite, fall, fall day. We're it, heading around the corner. It feels like it's just about time for the <laughs> season to start. Uh, That's right. After going through such a hot uh, summer. It has been, it has been brutal. Yeah. I always think brutal. about that when fall is about to approach, our season's going to start. That's right. So. And we're going to talk about today the uh, opening concert on October 7th. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to talk about our guest artist and have lots of conversations. So, Maestro, why don't you uh, kick us off? Sure. Tell us a little bit about what's going on. I'm looking forward to it very much. Uh, this opening season concert is an all-French program. And I didn't do that because my last name is Couturio. It has nothing to do with that. It's just uh, um, it just seemed to fit together. And it's uh, full of excitement, full of uh, drama and emotion. We get the whole gambit for this concert. We uh, actually have five different works on this program. Three of them are on the first half, and second, uh, two of them are on the second half. And we're opening uh, the season with a short work called Of a Spring Morning, and it's by a composer named Lily Boulanger. And she uh, uh, was a, a great talent in her time, in her short time. She actually only lived to be 24 years old, if you can imagine. Wow. Uh, she was born in uh, 1893. That's the same year Tchaikovsky died. Um, and I think about that, 24 years old. Even Mozart made it to his 30s, lower 30s, and, and Mendelssohn. You think of these composers who didn't have very much time on earth, and the output that they gave is great. Uh, but she was even less than that. She just was sick all of her life, but was determined to write music. She just had a passion for it. And this piece, Of a Spring Morning, was actually written right before she died. Wow. Uh, she died in 1918. She started it in 1917, orchestrated it, made it for orchestra in 1918, and she never even got to hear the premiere of it. So she died before it even premiered? Yes. Wow. And... Um, there is a counterpart piece uh, to it. it. She wrote another piece called Of a Sad Evening, and this one is, that we're doing is Of a Spring Morning. And she's, uh, like I said, she orchestrated it a little bit later. So the first version of these pieces were for violin, solo, and piano accompaniment. She then made another version, and composers do this a lot. They'll make different versions of, of these pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, it helps them think about how they're going to orchestrate it, I think, and part of the compositional process. And then she made it a version of, um, of, of A Spring Morning for Piano Trio, and then she orchestrated it. Um, and it's a wonderful work. It's short. It starts uh, off with uh, some vibrant energy. Uh, it, it has a little bit of impressionism to it. I know you know what that mm -hmm. means as sure. far as uh, paintings and right. all are concerned. Right. But for, for music, uh, the most famous impressionist musically is Claude Debussy. 
And uh, this starts off with a, a good-spirited principal theme in the flute. It's in the low register, and it has these swooping motions going upwards, these, these uh, scales going upwards. And the theme is passed around from instrument to instrument. And there's, an, there's all types of accompanying figures involved. Uh, and the uh, pulse and the energy goes from different place to different place in the orchestra. And then it, it has a relaxed middle section, uh, a little more nuanced and a little more uh, just, it set, just it sets a different mood. Then it goes back to a faster section again, and it has a nice, brilliant ending. It's a great way to open the season. Uh, and uh, I I really think it's important for us to also uh, be uh, performing music of of women, women right. composers. Sure. We've done that for the last couple seasons, and I think it, it's a great way to celebrate the beginning of our of our season. Uh, speaking of women, we have a wonderful soloist to join us for this concert. Her name is Lara St. John. And she's world-renowned violinist. Um, she, if you can believe, she started playing the violin when she was two years old. Wow. Wow. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking, of course, by the time you're one or so, or a little after one, you start walking, I yeah. guess. And, but even at two, your memory, I, I can't imagine her not ever knowing having a violin, not having a violin in her hand. Right. right. I would think. Um. So when you, of course, when you start at two years old and you're a prodigy, you uh, make your first appearance as a soloist with an orchestra at age four. Who wouldn't, right? <laughs> right. Um, she had her first European debut with an orchestra at ten. She had toured uh, Spain and France, Portugal, Hungary at age twelve, and by the time she was thirteen, she entered the Curtis Institute uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, that's remarkable. That age to start. Uh, at the Curtis Institute, yeah. so that that shows you know her ability right there. But she wasn't done with that. I mean, she went on to the Moscow Tchaikovsky Conservatory. She went to the Guildhall Music uh, School of Music, and then finally she went to Manus College in um, in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. um, so she's really trained with so many teachers. I could name names, but that's that's not you know the most important thing. She does play on uh, a 1779 Guadagnini. That's 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 right up there with Stradivarius or right. Del Gesù or all yeah. these famous mm -hmm. uh, families of violins. So it really helps to have a great violin and great bow. So when that touches the string, it immediately speaks and goes to the right. other end of the hall, mm -hmm. and it'll touch you in the audience just like that immediately. Well, she sounds like the New York Times has called her a high-powered soloist. Yes. So she's earned that title yes oh for, yes. for sure and she's uh run the gamut with many famous orchestras all the big orchestras uh cleveland philadelphia uh san francisco all boston so um we're just fortunate to have her here and i think one of the remarkable things about laura is that she's also an accomplished jazz musician is she, she really yes yeah, so she goes back and forth constantly between classical and jazz repertoire so that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it, it, she's not confined to mm -hmm. one genre of music, and that's great to have mm -hmm. interests beyond. Music is music, uh, and whether it's for music with symphony orchestra or with jazz band or with mm -hmm. rock bands or with by yourself, one instrument solo, Yeah, that's how she portrays it. And you all know how much of a jazz fan I am, so yep. I loved, uh, loved to hear that. That's yeah. great.
And she's doing something a little different as well. She's going to play two works with us, and neither of them are a concerto. And uh, so the first of the two works she's going to play is by another French composer. His name is Chasson, Ernest Chasson, and it's called Poem. And this was written at the very end of the um, 19th century. Chasson had studied with César Franck, who was a, a famous composer and teacher at the time. And um, he wrote this piece for a very, very famous violinist, Eugene Isai. And anyone who plays violins knows this name, and there's a lineage of uh, teachers with him in it for his students go on to teach other students. And, and uh, you know, it's all about lineage. People like to know where they came from right. in their teaching. And yes. so he yeah, is yeah. one of those schools. He uh, is a Belgian violinist, so there's, there's a Belgian school of violin playing, too, that, that he's known for. But this is a piece. It's not a long piece. It's about 16 minutes or so. And uh, it's, it's one continuous movement, one work. Okay. Uh, it's it's uh, called poem. It's pretty straightforward and plaintive and dialogue between the violin and the orchestra. There are times where the violin is uh, by itself and kind of ethereal, and the orchestra comes in to accompany. Uh, there are, there are melodies that are somewhat bittersweet to it. It's a very emotional piece. Um, the orchestra takes up the bittersweet of the violin and makes it a little bit more urgent and has builds to uh, some nervous animato or passionate passages um, until there's a climatic section in a, in a little faster tempo and allegro or faster section. Right. And then it eventually returns to the opening tempo, uh, but it's more reflective this time. And... Um, there's a, a sense of exoticism to some of the harmonies. It may sound a little Eastern, more Eastern at times. Eastern uh, towards Russia and Asia a little right, bit. Right, Eastern and, European. Yes, Eastern European, sure. And uh, calms down and really concludes with a, about a hint of nostalgia and ends soft. And uh, beautiful, beautiful 16 minutes. And so that's the first work she's going to play. The second work is a composer that we have actually two works for on this program, and she's starting off with uh, Ravel, and Maurice Ravel, and the name of that work is Sagan. And this is very much gypsy-esque. Uh, Ravel was in the First World War, World War. War and he had fought, and uh, as you can imagine, some of the things he saw and coming back from the war after the war, this is World War One, right? Yes, right. Uh, was and depressed. I mean, I don't think any of us can know unless you've been through something like that, and how how that can truly affect you. And thematically, that represents a lot of his work, does it not? Uh, it it had an effect on all of his his works, yeah. From then on, after you Forward, know, but yeah. he he used you know how comedians might use what they do to get through difficult times even uh through through comedy or right mm -hmm. for someone like him it's music to write music it may have nothing to do it may not sound anything like war or, or things like but it was an outlet to better himself i mm -hmm. think and uh so 
after the war, he was uh, actually visiting in London. He was in an apartment, uh, and a violinist was playing some true gypsy melodies for him, and he kind of got inspired. He, he thought, I want to write a piece like that. I don't, I've, I'm not as familiar, but i got to figure out how that, that's done and, and what, what I can do. And, and so he did, and it's called Zagan, and it's very uh, rhapsodic. It's very. It's also one movement work. It's shorter. It's ten minutes as opposed to twenty uh, mm -hmm. sixteen mm -hmm. for the chasson, and um, it starts unusually with the violin by itself for like over about five minutes. So almost oh, really? half of the piece, maybe not quite five, but almost half, is the soloist by themselves. Wow! If you can imagine that, yes. And you have to be a. a um, storyteller a great storyteller on your fiddle mm -hmm. and you have to be a virtuoso to mm -hmm. pull something off like this right. because there is some true demands on the violin before the orchestra ever comes in mm -hmm. uh, you'll hear some all types of uh, different techniques you'll hear uh, laura playing several strings at the same time with double stops and and uh, playing on two strings at the same time but different notes on each string so your your both fingers are moving in different directions uh while your bow you know, of course is is going right. on and it, it's it's very difficult um to make a good sound doing that mm -hmm. it takes a lot of training uh you'll hear lots of pizzicato or plucked strings by both her right hand and her left hand she'll she'll pluck the string while she's fingering strings wow so there's there's a lot going on there and the, the different types of pizzicato they sound different because of you, which hand you're using but she'll do that, and then it comes to a flurry moment where she has this tremolo or fast two notes going on at the same right, time right. on two strings, and then the the orchestra comes in with uh, the harps are going. Uh, the harp is coming in with going up and down while she's doing exotic rhythms, uh, and then there's a climax to that, and then there's an actual pulse. There's an actual line in the uh, in the orchestra. It starts off with a real pulse and she fits her new gypsy melody within that rhythmically then, rhythmically yes and then from then the orchestra as long as they're steady with their pulse and it gets a little faster each bit a little faster and she fits in her thing her with much rubato going in and out of it and it's one large huge buildup to the end where it's almost out of control i like to call it with the orchestra it's chaos but the audience shouldn't know, but it's controlled chaos. Right. And so uh, just when you think it, it's, it can't get any wilder, it gets one notch more. Right. And then it comes with a big bang. And that's how the, the first half ends. I know uh, every violinist in the orchestra will admire what, she's, what she does with it. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that translates to the audience and everyone else. Sure. I, I'm sure it will. Yes, absolutely. So that's the first half. The second half has two more pieces. The first is by, I mentioned Claude Debussy mm -hmm. before. Uh, he wrote a work called Nocturnes, and there's actually three movements to Nocturnes. Uh, we're doing the first two movements of those three, and typically the, the work is done like we're doing it with just the first two. Right. Or if you do the third, the third involves a, a chorus, a women's chorus. And we're just happening to not do that, that piece. So the first two movements will be done. And out of, those are called uh, clouds 
or nuage, and fet, festivals. So clouds and festivals. And it is very impressionistic too. Uh, it starts very slow and mysterious, uh, like you're inside the clouds and right. you're not, it's hard to see sometimes through and everything looks uh, misty. And uh, the, there's a line of quarter notes that go up and down, and you're not, you're not, sh it's a little unbalanced. You're not sure where Ethereal. you are. Ethereal. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, and then some solos start to happen within the orchestra that makes it a little more clear of what, what's happening. So when we get to the middle of this movement, uh, there's, it, it's a little bit faster, and you can hear some pulse in the harps that, that shows you that it's going to be faster. And it's almost like going from different shades from, Earlier where it's gray to you might see some color in the sky. Right. Uh, a little more hope, hopeful feeling without it. And then it goes back a little bit down into more mysterioso type feel. And it ends uh, soft. And then the next movement called Festival uh, starts with this huge dance-like rhythm in the violins. And then the winds take this triplet figure off of that. And it's, it sounds like flashes of light. Like if you were at a festival or right. a carnival and you, you look over and something goes off here and then you turn and you hear another right. noise right. and you right. turn right. your head. And it's full of that. Uh, and it gets a little bit faster and faster and faster till there's a climactic moment and this big brass chord comes in. Bum, 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 be, yeah. And so it's like a break in the, in the, in the, fast section, right? You think right. you're out of it, and then you get this huge glissando or this line in the heart, and now we're back off to it again. Right. Uh, it's an odd metered section after that, so you're a little uneasy as to what what's happening. Right. What I mean by that odd meter, usually uh, lots of pieces will have a four pulses, right. one, two, three, three four, four right, one, yes. two, three, four, and the one downbeats are strong in music. Or just in two, like a march. One, yes, two, one, right. two. Well, when it's five, it's like four with one added. So right. it's off kilter a little bit. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three. Right. Four. And so it, it, it can sound a little problematic, like I'm not sure what's going on. Uh, the orchestra will be very sure and very steady, of, of course. course. Right. And it, it flourishes again, and it, it has this big line of festivals. And then uh, it simmers down too, uh, as if like at, you're there till the evening, and and eventually they they're telling you we've got to shut down. The, the time, right. it's time to go, get out, right? And so it ha it goes down to a slower tempo, and then it's like the one guy that wants to stay till the very end of, of the till the place closes, the park closes. I, I know that guy. Oh, <laughs> well then I'm I'm talking about you. <laughs> The cellos and basses try to stay. Maybe you should play cello and bass in this then. And it, it has the rhythm of the five pulse a little bit more uh, at, the, at the very end. Then it breaks down to just three pulses here. And then it's, it quiets down. And I want everybody to notice there's a little symbol at the end, but it's not like crashing two symbols together. They're going to take a piece of metal and slide it across the top of the, of the symbol. And it sounds like this way. And then there's a little bit of pizzicato in the cello basses, and that's the end. It's a lot of imagery in the and piece. Very much so. Impressionism, of yes, course. Right, of course. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly what it is. Uh, 
And then after that, our final piece is also for a very large orchestra. Um, it's called Daphnis and Chloe. And it's from a ballet called Daphnis and Chloe that Ravel wrote. Um, this comes from the time of the Ballet Russe, which was in the early 1900s. Right. Uh, that Stravinsky really wrote a lot of ballets for. You know, Stravinsky wrote The Firebird mm -hmm. and The Rite of Spring yes. and Petrushka. Well, those were all done around 1910, 1911, and then 19, the, uh, the Firebird and Petrushka. And then 1912, right in the middle, uh, Diaghilev, that's the name of the person who owned the, the uh, Ballet Russe, asked Ravel to write a piece. And it was, Ravel had a hard time doing it. He was such a perfectionist as all these people are. Uh, it took him a while, but he finally got it done. And he called it Daphnis and Chloe. Uh, he had trouble with some of the choreographers. And uh, he was saying at one point, well, I don't know very much Russian. And I don't, he doesn't know very much French. He goes, but I know enough Russian to know the cuss words they're saying to right. me. So it was, it was that kind of that type of work environment. Uh, the ballet itself was not hugely successful from a, a dance perspective. It's not used in that realm anymore. Right. But the music itself has become a huge, huge staple for the symphony orchestra. So the premiere of the ballet was not a huge success. Um, I don't want to say it was bad, but it was not, it just, it never took on it, the form for ballet and dance to keep doing it throughout the, the year. So it's not done all the time really these days, but the music has lasted until this day and has become a staple in the repertoire for the, uh, for the orchestra. Now, ballet itself is, is, can be quite long. So what they do for concert stage is he made two different suites out of the one ballet. There's a, there's, so there's suite number one and there's suite number two. And the second suite has, be, they're both great music, get, don't get me wrong, but the second has become more popular of the two. Um, and it's really a, a fan favorite, and that's the one that we'll be doing. So we're doing suite number two from the ballet Daphnis and Chloe. It uh, really sounds, to me, it's principally has to do with celebration. It's just like one big celebration. It starts off with uh, a very soft and ethereal, and there's flowing rhythmic uh, sounds in the woodwinds. This is very difficult for flutes and clarinets and bassoons, all the woodwinds. Uh, there's a, like 12 notes within one beat, and the beat, even when it's slow, to put 12 notes in one beat is, is a lot to do in flow. Mm -hmm. Would that be like a motif kind of idea? It's, it's, it's motivic in the sense that it, it has, it, it's producing like sounds of mist or water that's, right. that's flowing. Okay. In this sense, uh, but on after that, after that's like a quasi little introduction, and then you have this pulse in the basses, a little more melodic line, and it it uh, has a sense of climax, and then along the way there's some little harmonics in the violins. That's where they just touch the string, not push down. Right. And they push their bow, and these little sounds are like birds. Bium bium. Bium, 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 like they're birds at, 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 within the mist that you see in the water. And that, that helps create 
imagery itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, there's a climax and it starts over again. And then it's the same uh, line in the bases, but this time it really represents sunrise. It's a huge sunrise. And sunrise can take time, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you're right. patient to watch. And so that's what this this line in the woodwinds that I was saying really helps create a sense of uh, urgency as far as when, like, you're wanting to see that sunrise come up, right? Mm-hmm. But the holding back just enough, you know, and it as the sun comes up, it's just a spectacular climax for the whole orchestra. Right. And like I said, large, large orchestra. Uh, you'll see... Uh, four different flute players playing different types of flutes your standard flute you'll see the piccolo of course you'll see what's called you'll see a larger flute that it looks bigger than what you normally see it's an alto flute called flute in right alto flute is in g it doesn't matter it plays lower pitches right uh you'll of course see the oboes and the english horn that you normally see you'll see uh three different types of clarinets your standard clarinet uh, the smaller one with the E-flat clarinet is a smaller, and so when it's smaller, it's a higher-pitched clarinet. Sure. You'll see uh, the bass clarinet, which is a little more lanky-looking, goes right. all the way down to the floor. There's a little end pin that sits on the floor for it sometimes. You'll see several bassoons and a contra bassoon, uh, lots of horns. You'll see four trumpets instead of—sometimes we have two or three, but this calls for four trumpets. Uh, he orchestrated it for— of course, three trombones and tuba, and there's some others that I know Lori's excited to see on the stage. Two harps. Yeah. We don't often get to hear and see two harps. Two harps. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, the reason he uses two harps, you can get more, of course, more sound, but uh, as one line goes in, and it, because harps are very difficult and intricate, sure. it, one, one can end and the other can begin, and it's seamless. It may sound like just one harp at times. But uh, you can get away with more things doing writing in this fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, when you have these swooping sounds of glissando, yeah. all this type of thing, it's more effective when you have two of them. Two of them. Sure. It's more dramatic in that way. And we will also have a celeste. So that's a keyboard instrument. It, it'll look like a little box with, with piano keys right. on one side of it. And uh, our Piano player for the orchestra will come and play that. That adds color. It sounds a little bit like orchestra bells, but it has a little, to me, that orchestra bells or, or glockenspiel in mm-hmm. German. Yes, right. Sounds more bright. I always think of the pitches going, after you hit it, it goes up and you it sounds this. Uh, I'm, I'm, my hands are going up as I say <laughs> this. I know you can't see it. The celeste for me has a more uh, somber or a little darker sound muted to it eh, it's not muted per se uh it just doesn't have a twinge to it that the the, right. the glockenspiel there's different tone colors and um you know composers use for whatever sounds they're mm-hmm. thinking of and in this case he really wanted this this celeste sound so after sunrise there's a moment in the in the story and the story is not necessarily hugely important for to hear this uh this is this one continu- the suite is in one continuous movement. Right. But there's sections. So after the sunrise, there's a, a portion where there's a big, large flute solo. Daphnis had made a flute out of uh, some bamboo and things, and it's just was calling to, uh, in the story, 
and anyways. But the, he kept this big flute solo in this suite, and our wonderful principal flutist, uh, this is a huge solo for, for anybody who plays flute in any orchestra. And it's very exotic sounding. The pulse can be straight in the orchestra, but what our flutist, what Leslie will do within this is, uh, in a way, reminds me a little bit how our soloist uh, in the first half will do the Ravel and, and, and have some rubato within, but it's a different mood. That's more gypsy. This is more in a different type of exotic feel right. to it. Right. And that pushes to uh, a little bit more of a whirlwind to a climax and goes down a little bit. And then the last section of the uh, suite is a big dance. Uh, and this is where it's really a tour de force for the whole orchestra. You start to get a triplet figure in different meters. Right, right, right. Uh, and then the violas take over. All of this. And it, it uh, also has, in the sense, uh, but on a bigger scale, because it's much more orchestra, a portion at the end where it's almost out of control, too. Uh, this is a little more celebratory than uh gypsotic like like the sagan and at the very end of it, it ends very loud and and big at the very end after all the rhythms the orchestra just holds boom and it ends but in the score it's got several bars like 12 bars of of just that hold now why would he do that well, why not just put a fermata and hold or right. just hold this sound and not move? Why repeat it? Why repeat it on the bars over and over and over and over and over and over again? Well, the reason is this was a ballet originally. And in ballet, uh, it's all about steps and right. numbers. There's a reason there's so many bars he does over and over because there's steps involved with the dancers. They're all, and that, that pulse, even though there's nothing happening, Right. To them, stepwise, there is. Mm -hmm. So they're still counting if it's one, two, one, two. Right. They're still counting. Mm -hmm. I'm clapping my hands as the right. beat. They still have that going on in their head as they're dancing. And that's what he just writes it out for the orchestra. So when you do it on concert stages, no dancers, you know, you can either, some conductors will beat out that time at the mm -hmm. end because he wrote those bars, so they're there. Right. Or they'll, some will say, it's just the, it's the excitement at the end you can hold and they'll they'll play the same thing over until you give the final downbeat of the piece so i thought that was a little interesting to know. Yeah, it is because you wouldn't see the inside of that in the score otherwise right unless you knew the score yeah right so that's how we end uh the concert it's going to be a wonderful evening i know everyone will enjoy the first half with laura but the orchestra really is shown off in the second half what an exciting start to the new season. Yeah. Um, really what a great is. way to start. Yeah. And one big change we have this season is our concerts will start at 7.30 p.m. We have moved away from the 8 p.m. start time. So want to make sure everybody knows that. So everybody can finish dinner a little bit earlier. That's right. right. And uh, get, get there. Yeah, you don't want to be late because you'll miss, you'll miss the right. first portion of the first half. Yes. Uh, but then... That gives you a little more time to go out after and have a good time after the concert. That's right. Too. Visit or, with the musicians or the maestro. Or, or if you're tired and you want to go home, you can go, go home. home. <laughs> That's right. Very good. What an exciting opening night concert.
It really is. And, and we have some other things happening, yeah? We do. So um, our annual Beaujolais Bash is coming up on Saturday, November 18th. And it will be held once again at the Network of Community Ministries in Richardson. And it's a, a very fun and festive event. And tickets went on sale today, so they can be purchased through our website. Tickets are $100, and sponsorships are available at all levels. And it's a lot of fun. We have a, a wonderful caterer who's putting together an incredible assortment of French-inspired fare and, of course, multiple wines to taste. And we'll have an RSO string quartet performing throughout the event. So it's a lot of fun. And um, we sold out last year, and I anticipate we'll sell out again this year. Hey, it's uh, always a fun event. I always have a great time yes. when I'm there. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. It is. Very good. Well, we have a, a great fall season, a great new repertoire, a great start to the season. Thank you both very much. I'd also like to mention we have an exciting collaboration. Our opening night concert is being presented by WRR Classical 101. So we're very, very honored to be partnering with them and to have them as our presenting sponsor. I got to talk to Amy Bishop earlier uh, about this, and uh, it's just a special uh, collaboration we have with it you. is it absolutely is and that um, interview will be broadcast starting next Friday so end of September um, our audience can hear Amy's conversation with Maestro Caturio listen for that uh, listen for that coming up yes very good all right folks thank you very much what a great way to start the season again and I guess that's it okay all right thank you Ross We'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, Humanities of Texas, The Ray Charitable Trust, and Frost Bank. I want to remind everyone that tickets are available at the Eisman Center Ticket Office and on their website at eismancenter.com. Maestro, thank you. It's always great to chat with you. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to Portraits and Music with Maestro Clay Catorio. I'm your producer and co-host, Ross Sievertson. Remember, if you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button so you can get new episodes downloaded to you automatically. Reviews and ratings are always appreciated, and it helps us to provide you with more great inside conversations from the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. Until next time.